0: Thank Paul for that opportunity to do so. Um, I usually always panic um, after I say yes to speaking. Um, I get flustered on what I'm going to speak about, what book to reference from, and in preparation for tonight's sermon, that panic has also been the case. But I've always took the approach to speaking a passage that I've been actively reading um, in my own personal study. And this process hasn't let me down yet, and I hope it won't tonight, as I still have another 20 minutes or so to get through. Um, but for me it's been so beneficial in my own personal walk with God and I can really start to see a theme constantly coming up time and time again and that theme is prayer for me and I really feel that the Lord is speaking to me about prayer through his word and um, where we're going to be referenced from tonight is the book of Habakkuk Um, and this is where the theme has come up for me again. Um, and Just a wee bit of background of how I got to habakkuk um ivan asked me a couple of weeks ago to take part in a sunday morning service by giving thanks for the cup and before i do that i usually like to think of a little bit of scripture or a psalm to reflect on and base my prayer around as the spirit leads but whilst i was trying to think of, it, of a scripture i got the verse of the day notification on you version very lazy <laughs> but it did come through and um, it was Habakkuk three seventeen to 18, and if, if you can turn to there now, that'd be great, and we'll just read it together. And it's all about this theme of Habakkuk rejoicing in the Lord. Um, so verse 17, it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olives fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, And there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You know, what a tremendous and profound couple of verses that we've just read. You know, if salvation is all we get in this life, if we receive no other blessing from the Lord, that is still far more, infinitely more, than we could ever deserve. And after reading and using this verse to give thanks to the cup, I had to delve in a wee bit deeper into how Habakkuk got here, what made him rejoice in the Lord, even if all those other blessings started to disappear. And it all has to do with communicating with God through prayer. And I think this will be really helpful and beneficial for us tonight. It'll show a healthy way, as Christians, to approach God in prayer, because we know that our faith is never plain sailing. You know, there's times, I'm sure you're the same as me, where we doubt God, Times that our, heart, our hearts, are sorry, times that our heads know God's truth, um, but our hearts are not so sure. There are times where that we feel to see and understand why God is allowing something to happen in our lives. And times where we think that he's not listening to our prayers. Times where we think he's silent and he's not acting. And these are all times that Habakkuk has experienced, and yet he rejoices in the Lord, and he takes joy in the God of his salvation as he works through his frustrations with the Lord. So before we we get started into it, um, if we could just take a wee minute just to pray. Father in heaven, thank you for another um, Sunday. Lord, thank you for this Easter week and how we were reminded of your great love for us, Lord, that you would send your son into this world to die on a cross for our sins and then to be raised to be raised from, from dead, over, overcoming death, Lord, and offering that now to us, Lord, that we can walk in unison of life um, with you and your son because of what he has paid for us on the cross. And Lord, I just pray now that um, you would help me to be able to speak your words, Lord, and ask these things in your name. Amen. So just a wee bit of background info in the, uh, Habakkuk, he was a prophet roughly about 640 BC, and he was living in a time where he's seen the rapid decline of Judah morally and spiritually. You know, Judah had a new king called Jeokim, and I think it was roughly four to five years into his reign that Habakkuk's ministry begins. And this king was actually son of a really good king called Josiah, who had ultimately reformed Judah and handed the nation back to the Lord because he found the book of the law. He renewed the covenant. He tore down the high places of idol worship, destroyed the priests of false gods, reinstated at the Passover, and turned, turned Judah back to the Lord. You know, that's quite a lot of good things in your CV there. And in 2 Kings 23 25, it says, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, in accordance with the law of Moses. Well, unfortunately, um, Josiah died, and his son took over. And he basically reversed all the good work that his father had done before him. And he led the nation back into sin. He's actually recorded as in Jeremiah. um, He's recorded as cutting Jeremiah's scroll, as Jeremiah reads from the the word of God. And it had the Lord's words written on them. And he started just to burn them in front of the prophet. um, All the pieces in a fire pot. He ignored Jeremiah's plea for the nation to repent and instead hardened his heart and shook his little fist at God. Um, Second Chronicles 36.5 speaks about him. It says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So Judah is in a really bad um, state. And if you just look at chapter 1 there, if you just flick, flick over, um, you'll see that there's a couple of complaints that Habakkuk brings before the Lord. And this is the first one. Chapter one, and we'll just read from verses two to four. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so, justice goes forth perverted. You know, Habakkuk witnessed the reform of Judah under, the, under King Josiah, but now he's witnessing the decline and the falling away from God and back into sin. And it's interesting that lo- not long after the fall of Adam and Eve, violence ensued with Cain murdering his own brother. You know, we see a sim- similar theme here violence and destruction reign in Judah. And, you know, in a comparable sense the decline that Habakkuk has witnessed in Judah doesn't seem to be too far from the, cl- the decline we have witnessed in Northern Ireland spiritually and morally in recent years. You know Northern Ireland for many years has been one of the um, greatest beings of light in Europe but all too recently we as God's people have felt like Judah the decline in our nations. You know in the past five years not only have we passed a bill that no longer protects those little lives In the womb but we've actually passed the most liberal abortion law in Europe which allows mothers to kill their babies in the womb right up until birth our society also disregards and ignores what defines a man and what defines a woman and instead it tells you you can be who you want and that can change daily you know we as a society no longer really want God we just want his things we've pushed God further and further out of our lives to worship on the altar of the God of self. But the God of self forsakes righteousness for the worship of destruction, violence, strife, and contention. All the same things that Habakkuk was experiencing in Judah. Um, but in his cry and frustrations with what's going on around him, he begins with four simple words that should challenge us this evening. He says, O Lord, how long? And in just four words, Habakkuk models exactly how we should deal with similar situations. You know, Number one, it alludes to the fact that we should pray consistently. You know, We li- live in a time of immediacy. We have access to information and answers and at the press of a button with something we can carry about in our pockets. We can have access to goods with next day delivery. We live in a world where when we expect things yesterday. And sometimes this immediacy can fall into our prayer life where we demand answers immediately from the Lord and if we don't get them immediately, we give up on it. But not Habakkuk. His how long to the Lord indicates a long-term prayer request that he was consistent with. So tonight, how's your prayer life? Is it consistent? And then the next one is that, that, oh Lord, how long, alludes to the fact that he had a close relationship with the Lord. And we maybe cringe at the idea of Habakkuk speaking to the Lord like this, but it actually demonstrates the close relationship that he had with the Lord. I don't know about you, but over this past week I've probably been asked, well, how's it going? About a hundred times, and I'm sure you probably have been asked that question too. You know, how different is your response to people who you barely know compared to those who you have a deep connection with? Like your spouse who knows you? I mean, it'd be pretty awkward to completely offload bare souls and all our problems to someone we might have just met compared to someone who knows us better than we know ourselves. And this is the honesty that Habakkuk has with the Lord. So how close is your relationship with the Lord tonight? Are your prayers surface level like that house things? Or do you have a deeper relationship with him that allows you to be as honest as Habakkuk? And then the third thing, just quickly, is um we should be like him if you have put your faith and trust in jesus christ tonight and what He has done for you on the cross then you know that it was our sin that held him to that tree and because of that unfathomable cost to god we should hate sin and jesus actually tells us to put sin to death that's why habakkuk is frustrated everywhere he looks he sees lawlessness and sin and it calls him to cry out to the lord to save and likewise, we're not to be silent or to sit in the fence with sin. We shouldn't tolerate it and we should hate it. Hate it to the point of eradication. The sin in our lives and in the sin of our nation. And this is evident in Habakkuk's life. I wonder is it evident in yours? And then again, if we just look at chapter one, you'll see the Lord's first answer to Habakkuk's complaint. If you look at if we'll read from five to seven. And it says, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. And I think the Lord's response is actually really comforting and quite reassuring for Habakkuk because he addresses Habakkuk's complaint of having to look at evil head on with another look. He tells Habakkuk, look, I'm doing a work in your days. Despite Habakkuk's perspective that the Lord is just standing by doing nothing, the Lord tells him it's quite the opposite, that he's already at work, formulating a plan that Habakkuk will actively see pan out in his day. And that's a reminder for us all this evening. Maybe you think that the Lord is distant. Um, silent and maybe overlooking the season that you find yourself in. Maybe you're struggling to understand why the Lord is overlooking your struggles or allowing certain things to happen, but the Lord is doing a work and he promises that you'll see that work unfold in the days that lie ahead. And Habakkuk mentions, or the Lord, sorry, mentions the Chaldeans. Um, So what's the Lord's plan here with the Chaldeans? Habakkuk probably knew that there was some sort of discipline on the horizon that would be used by the Lord when considering that this is the same method that he uses in his word time and time again. We have to look no further than at the book of Isaiah. But I'm not quite sure, sure um, that he thought that the Lord would use a nation like the Chaldeans. Um, they were a much feared and dreaded people. In fact, the very sound of their name would strike terror into the hearts of a nation. And we will see later on how they strike fear into Habakkuk. To sum it up, they were war machines, and they lived for violence. And verse 9 there of chapter 1 tells us why they marched to foreign lands. And it's the game more ter- territory, of course, but they actually just really enjoyed the violence. It was like a much-loved hobby to them. And the Lord actually describes their army like predatory animals, um, and just for sake of time, um, I'll just sort of list them out and describe what the Lord says. But he lists them like predatory animals to highlight the severity of the violence that these people have. Um, You'll see through chapter one that he says that they're swifter than leopards. And when we think of leopards, we think of sudden violence for their prey. You know, they don't hang about very quickly or they don't Sorry, hang about. They're very quick in their violence. And the Chaldean army would invade Judah with a sudden speed. You know, they wouldn't hold back and so fast that the the Judeans wouldn't be able to escape the violence. Um, They're also described as fiercer than evening wolves. And when we think of evening wolves, we think of hungry, bloodthirsty, ravenous and savage. And that's the way the Chaldean army would be. They would be hungry to devour Judah. And then the last one is he describes them like an eagle. It's quick to devour. And an eagle is a powerful bird. It has a wingspan of seven and a half feet that allows it to cover a vast amount of distance in a short space of time. And it's the same for this powerful Chaldean army. They would swoop through today to destroy it quickly. And yet despite this evil pagan nation who didn't know God, it was in fact God who was raising them up. You see, his people, from Judah had ignored his justice, so they they would be subjected to the Chaldeans' justice. They were guilty of violence, and so that is what they would receive. The Chaldeans were not just an instrument under God's sovereign authority, but they were an instrument in God's purposes for Judah. God allows the wickedness of the Chaldeans, and that should create a, a peace in us knowing that nothing ever really takes God by surprise. He's sovereign. And that's a profound truth and reminder that God is in control of every situation even in control of a wicked nation like the Chaldeans you know who else can we put our trust into and then if you flick on there to chapter 2 you'll see Habakkuk has a second complaint with the Lord after what he hears um, from the Lord's answer he says in chapter 1 where he sort of finalizes his complaint he says I will take stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And Habakkuk, like I said before, expected a disciplining method from God to restore Judah, but he didn't expect the Lord would choose to use a wicked nation like the Chaldeans. He doesn't understand why God would allow a more righteous nation, in comparison, to be swallowed up by a more wicked one. It doesn't make sense to him. Instead, if you read in your, your spare time, he actually uses a fishing analogy, which I think is quite useful. He states his argument with this fishing analogy, um, which likens the Chaldeans to fishing with a rod and a net from the rivers that God has generously stocked with human fish. You know, Habakkuk probably draws on that analogy because that's how the Chaldeans imprisoned their captors. They would have used these big, massive hooks that they would have put through their captor's jaw to chain them and lead them together. So they were just a real wicked people. But the I will take stand at my, my watch post is another thing that we can learn. You know, Habakkuk has been bold before the Lord in prayer, confused, yes, about why he seems to be allowing wickedness to go unpunished, questioning the Lord's plan, and even his own character. And yet, despite Habakkuk's perplexity of God's plan, despite his wrestling with the idea that the wicked seemed to succeed. Despite the violence and destruction going on in Judah, he decides to wait upon the Lord in humble, submissive humility. He could have shook his little fist at God, too, because the answer to his prayer wasn't the answer he wanted, but he, do- he doesn't do that. Instead, he decides to remove himself um, from the distractions of his city and the distractions of his heart that's going on and he decides to take stand at his watch post, to watch and to wait for what the Lord will say. Why? Because the Lord tells us that the righteous shall live by faith. And Habakkuk already knows that he's been bold, and he's expecting a rebuke from the Lord, and he's willing to accept it. You know, what a challenge for us tonight. You know, things will happen in our lives, no doubt, that will cause us to question God's plan for us, you know, if they haven't already. But what will our response be? Will it be to grow distant from God, to question his character, or to shake our fist at him? Or will it be to wait upon him in prayer with the same expectancy Habakkuk has that he will speak to us and remind us, no matter our lot, God is in control. He's doing it for our good, painful though it might be, but purposeful nonetheless, edging us closer and closer to a glory fit with him. Don Carson says this, he says, pray until you pray. Christians should pray long long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feeling of uh, formalism and unreality that attends a little praying. Many of us in our praying are like nasty little boys who ring front doorbells and run away before anyone answers. And then the Lord answers Habakkuk again. If you look at chapter 2, You know, the Lord affirms here to Habakkuk that this is not the end of the story. But Habakkuk is going to have to be patient. The Lord tells him to wait for it. And he promises that it will surely come. You know, the Chaldeans are not going to prosper forever like Habakkuk thinks. They will also face the Lord's wrath and punishment. In verse 16 of chapter 2, the Lord says that the cup that is in the Lord's right hand will come around to the Chaldeans and they'll have to drink from it, and utter shame will come upon their own glory. And in chapter 2, the Lord announces announces five woes to the Chaldeans because of their wickedness and what they will reap from what they have sown. The first one is, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? You know, the Chaldeans were a greedy nation and took what was not theirs. In the end of this woe, the Lord tells Habakkuk that the debtors will come for the Chaldeans because they have taken what is not theirs. Verse 7 tells us, because they have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder them. The second woe there is, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. The Chaldeans army's tactic was to capture nations around them to use as buffer zones and so to create a sense of security. But the Lord proves that this will be a false sense of security for them. They have built their house on ill-gotten gain, and those very things will come back to haunt them. The Lord says there in verse 10, you have devised shame for 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 you your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. The third one is, woe to him who builds a town with blood. The psalmist was right when he said, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. And in fact, the labour involved in the building of a town and city with blood will be far for the judgment that is to come. And that's what the Lord tells him. But he promises that the earth will be filled with the glory of God. The fourth woe then is, um, woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. The Chaldeans had no care for the dignity of others and would go to extreme lengths to get what they wanted. They would, bring, they would exploit and bring shame on the neighbors by plowing them with drink until they were drunk. The Lord promises that in return that they will have to drink from the cup of his wrath. And verse 16, which I've already mentioned, says you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. And the last and final woe then is woe to him who makes idols. Through their wickedness, they give honor, praise, and worship to idols they made out of wood death, and dumb idols that can't speak, the Lord reminds Habakkuk um, that he is in his holy temple and that all the earth will be silent before him. You know, are you living by righteous faith tonight like Habakkuk? Or are you living in a puffed up soul like the Chaldeans? Have Have you built your life on sinfulness and the pleasures of this world? Have you exploited others and God to get what you want in life? Have you established a false sense of security, maybe through money and things to buffer the fact that one day you will stand before the Lord? And, you know, look at chapter 3 and verse 2. It says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. You know, God's perfect and just character is revealed through his wrath but also through his mercy. That's why the Easter holiday is so amazing this week. That's why we as Christians look forward to this season in the Christian calendar, because God has withheld his just wrath from us and instead has poured out his mercy, instead has poured out his wrath on his son, his only son, so that those who live by faith will receive his just mercy. You know, have you put your faith and trust in Christ tonight? Are you living by his faith? Are your sins washed by the blood that flowed from Calvary? Have you received his mercy? If you haven't, think about your soul this Easter. Think about your soul tonight before you leave this meeting. Think about the cost and the wrath that will be poured out on you because you don't live by faith in Jesus Christ, your sins not atoned for, and your end separated from Christ in a place called hell, all because you refused the sacrifice freely offered on the cross. You know, we don't worship a dead, death, and dumb God like the Chaldeans, but we worship the one true God who not only died for our sins, but rose again three days later, securing the same hope for those who put their trust and faith in him. That's why Resurrection Sunday is such an important Sunday to us, this reminder of newness of life in him. And then just, just in closing there, if you look at chapter three, Um, Habakkuk actually, after the Lord's answer, breaks out in a couple of songs, and you can read them later on, we just don't have time tonight to cover that, but in chapter 3, it sort of sums up where he's got to. You know, he's got from a very confused Habakkuk to a realization who the Lord is, and that which causes the rejoicing that I read about in the introduction, but let's just read it together again. It's chapter 3, and we'll go from 16 this time. It says, I hear Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You know, these few verses gives me gifts once every time I read them. Habakkuk's eyes have been opened by God to his plan of judgment for Judea and the Chaldeans. His internal feelings pour out into the physical. His body trembles, his lips quiver, and his legs are shaking at the imminent invasion and violence that's just around the corner but he ultimately knows the promise that God is in control and that he holds our lives in his hands. You know, there's no better place to be. So whilst his body does tremble, whilst his lips may quiver and his legs shake, his soul is steadfast and sure in the Lord, his rock. So no matter what his lot, he can rejoice in the Lord. And I actually forgot I had this, but I bought this at the Banger Missionary Convention last year. And it's a 30-day devotional on Habakkuk, um, which I've actually started reading. And I just sort of just wanted to read the last devotion day. And it's all about this rejoicing in the Lord. And it's um, by Jonathan Lamb. And if you want to take this on with you tonight, let me know when you can. Um, it's, a, it's a really good devotional. I've just sort of finished it. But he says, everything had gone. It is possible that Habakkuk is anticipating the ultimate day of the Lord, But it's also highly likely that he's describing the devastating impact of the predicted invasion of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans described in chapter 1. Verse 17 begins with the apparent luxuries of figs, grapes, and olives, but moves very quickly to show that there is no food at all. It wasn't simply a devastated economic and social infrastructure, but it was total destruction. That's what makes the small word yet all the more remarkable. Habakkuk is stripped of everything, and still the man of faith sings, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. You know, it is Job saying, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. It is Paul saying, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. How can Habakkuk respond as he does? What was there left for him to rejoice in? It was not in his possessions. It was certainly not in his circumstances. Like Job, he was stripped of everything else but God. And that is the key to his joy. It is finding that God, the creator, the redeemer, the covenant-keeping God is enough. That is how Habakkuk concludes his prophecy. All of those things on which we rely may be stripped away, but God is enough. All we have seen in the book of Habakkuk points us to this fact. For men and women of faith, evil has lost the initiative. When we become Christians, we are not protected from the hardships of this world. There is no guarantee that we will be immune from suffering or from God's discipline, from the oppression of enemies or from the pains and dangers of living in this broken world. But we know that the Lord will not let go of his people, that he has not abandoned his world. He is still in control and his purposes will be fulfilled. People of faith have discovered that Habakkuk's song rings true whenever everything is taken away we can say i will rejoice in the lord and i can rejoice in the lord tonight not because of anything that i have done but all because what he has done on the cross and i can take joy in the god of my salvation but the question is tonight can you amen